This week we'll celebrate Thanksgiving. It's a day set aside to give thanks to the Lord for all that He has done. Many people on social media use the entire month of November to share something they're thankful for each day of the month. While I've never actually done this, I do believe it's a great idea. It is good for us to focus on the things that we're thankful for rather than all the things that hack us off. Another reason I think this is a great idea is that Thanksgiving should turn our hearts toward God. Thanksgiving should always ultimately be directed to God for what he has done in us and through us and for us. James chapter one tells us that every good and perfect thing in our lives is a gift from God. Anytime we are giving thanks We should be careful to remember to thank God from whom all blessings flow. To that end, I want to use the remaining two Sundays in November to remind us of reasons we can and should be thankful to God for, regardless of the circumstances we find in our lives. We're starting this by looking at reasons to be thankful for the church. I think this is really important because we live in a day where so many people question why the church is needed. It's not uncommon For people to say that they have their own personal relationship with God, therefore they really don't need the church. We also live in a day where many people are critical of the church. The church today is blamed for everything from poverty to global warming. Very often the idea that these sorts of, uh, the idea in these sorts of comments is that the church is a, is a hindrance. At best, it is a nuisance or just an overall drain on our lives and on society at large. This is certainly not the way Jesus intends anyone, particularly those who have devoted their lives to him, to see the church. The church is one of Jesus's good gifts to us, and it should be a reason that we are thankful. We're going to look at why that is today. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 is where we're going to start. That is page 926 if you have a pew Bible. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. The author of Hebrews, he writes, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Title of the message this morning is Thankful for the Church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You have given us so much and you have done so much. And Lord, it is hard to find the words to thank you for all that we have and all of the many blessings you have poured out in our lives. And Father, we are in this month. Where thanksgiving is the focus. And in this time, help us to be a grateful people. Grateful for Jesus. Grateful for salvation. Grateful for your word. Grateful for your spirit that lives within us. And grateful for your church. Help us as the people of God. To never see the church as a burden or as a hindrance, or as a nuisance in our lives. Help us to understand why the church is so important. Help us to see it in the way that you see it, 
And help us to be committed to your church that we can make it and help it to accomplish all the things that you want accomplished in our world. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. And let us go out this week and be lights that shine brightly for Jesus. All that we say, all that we do, and everywhere that we go. And we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. The book of Hebrews is written to a, by an unknown author to an unknown Jewish community. These Jewish community were Christians that were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ. All that we really know about them is what we can pull out of the letter. And the main truth that we pull out is that they were suffering because of their conversion to Christianity. Jews that converted to Christianity were often shunned by their fellow Jews. They were often cast out of the synagogues, which were seen as like the, the hub of Jewish life. They were often fired from their jobs and physically abused even. And as these hardships began to pile up on their lives, they began to, to think, wasn't this bad before? Maybe, just maybe, we ought to go back to Judaism. And then all of this will stop and our lives will be better as they were before. At the time of the writing, they were given serious consideration to this. And somehow the author of Hebrews knows about this. And he writes to encourage them to keep on following Jesus. Part of the main thrust of what he has said up to this point is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is just better. And as you look at this passage, one of the things that should stand out is that the author is not referring to them, talking to them as individuals. He is talking to them as a community. And if we were to go up in all of chapter 10, we would find it all the way through. But I just want us to focus in verse 23, 24 and 25. Let, let us hold fast the confession of, of our hope. Let us consider one another, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but exhorting one another. Right? All in all, the author is not, he is not telling a group of individuals how to keep following Jesus. This isn't a letter to individual Christians telling them how to go off and be lone ranger Christians and do it by yourself. He's not telling them, you have your own relationship with Jesus. You don't need the church anymore. He's saying, all of you together are the church and now you need one another. In this time when things are hard, you need each other. And everything they need each other for, it all revolves around their relationship with Jesus. But if we were to look up at verse 22, let us draw near. Right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. 
Because he who promised is faithful. Let us consider one another to stir up love and good works. All of this, all of this is about let us help each other stay faithful to Jesus. Right? The world is against you. You need each other. And so come together and together strengthen yourselves. Strengthen one another. Encourage one another. Help one another. And the central truth I want you to understand and the, one of the main reasons we should always be thankful for the church is that the church strengthens my relationship with Jesus. The church strengthens my relationship with Jesus. In this passage, it gives us three ways the church will strengthen our relationship with Jesus. First is that the church strengthens my faith in Jesus. Verse 23, the author says, let us hold fast. Now, the phrase hold fast is significant considering the opposition that they are facing. They are to hold fast the confession of their hope without wavering. The confession of their hope is all about Jesus. They have confessed that Jesus was the son of the living God. They have confessed that Jesus died on the cross for their sins. They have confessed that Jesus rose again from the dead. They have confessed that Jesus alone makes them acceptable to God. And Jesus alone forgives their sins. Their return to Judaism would have meant an abandonment of this hope. The author is encouraging them not to do that. But to hold fast to the confession that they are hoping in. To hold fast, it means to keep trusting Jesus, even though things were hard. It means to not give up and not to go back. It means that even if the opposition doesn't let up, you keep moving forward. Even if the opposition intensifies, you keep trusting Jesus. Even as you get discouraged, even as you feel overwhelmed, even as you suffer because of Jesus, stay with Jesus. Trust Him no matter what. Why could they do this? Because He who promised is faithful. He's encouraging them. Keep trusting the promises that Jesus has given them. He wants them to remember that even though the world opposes them, God has promised very many good things for them. And the God who gave those promises is faithful. He will always do what he said he would do. The faithfulness of God is one of the great attributes of God. God is 100% faithful 100% of the time. Listen, we don't know anyone else like that. We know people who may be mostly faithful, but we don't know anybody who's always faithful. But even if I were to tell you, I, I try, my dad always taught us to keep our word even if it hurts. So if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to try my very best to do it. 
But no matter how much I want to and how much I intend to, there are situations that can come up that would keep me from keeping my word. There are things that can happen in my life that would prevent me from doing what I said I was going to do. Right? That never happens with God. There are never circumstances that are beyond his control. He's never overwhelmed with issues that, that come into life. Things are never outside of his power. If God has said it, God will do it. And so the author says, continue to trust Jesus because he is faithful and he will do what he has said he would do. If salvation was secure, it would be worth it all. They just needed to, to keep on keeping on. Keep trusting Jesus, even though the world at large was attacking and opposing their Christian faith. Now, our world is it's different in a lot of ways than their world was. Technologically advanced, a lot of things like that. But as the old saying goes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We live in a world that's by its very nature is hostile toward the Christian faith. Even if the world at large isn't actively opposed to Jesus, it doesn't help us to follow Jesus. Just the very nature of of the current of the world doesn't pull us to greater devotion to Jesus. It doesn't help us to love him more, to trust him more, to to serve him better. Just the, the current of the world pulls us in the opposite direction. And that's just like the general nature. That doesn't even take into consideration specific attacks on our faith. But that doesn't take into consideration the, the way that, that the American affluence attacks our faith. It doesn't take into consideration pop culture's normalizing of what the Bible calls sin and, and, and everything else. It doesn't take any of that into consideration. So we live in a world that is by and large hostile to our Christian faith and is pulling us away from Jesus. We have an enemy. That the Bible says is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have an enemy who who is looking for just the right opportunities to attack and devour and destroy in our lives. So while we may not face the same physical attacks that they did, there are attacks on our faith nonetheless. And these attacks... They, they, they can damage our faith in Jesus. But here's the good news. Jesus isn't in heaven wringing his hands over the attacks that we see on our faith today. He, he isn't in heaven wringing his hands saying, If only I had thought about something that would allow them to come together and, and strengthen their faith with each other. If, if only I had came up with a reason and a way for them to, to get together and encourage one another. He's not saying that because he did come up with something that would help us to strengthen our faith. That would help us to keep our faith in him rock solid. That's what the church is. That's what the church does. It's what the church is for. How does the church do this? The church does this in a lot of ways. The church does this by reminding us of the greatness and the power and the faithfulness of Jesus when we gather together. 
We're reminded of these things as we sing songs. We're reminded of these things as we study His Word. We're, we're reminded of these things as we talk to one another. And we see how God has helped us out through the week. And as God has answered our prayers and met with us in those times and spoken to us through His Word. And as, and as I am strengthened in my faith, I'm able to help you be strengthened in yours. And as you're strengthened in your faith, you're able to help me be strengthened in mine. And everything that we do here together, in part, is meant to help strengthen our faith in Jesus. We talk about His faithfulness, His goodness, the promises that are still to come. And all of this strengthens our faith in Jesus. And as long as my faith in Jesus is strong, my relationship with Jesus is strong. So the church strengthens my faith in Jesus by strengthening my strengthens my relationship with Jesus by strengthening my faith in Jesus. Secondly, the, the church strengthens my devotion to Jesus. I, I love verse 24, that very first part. Let us consider one another. As a whole, this community was suffering. And they are likely suffering in, in all kinds of ways. From what we know of this era and the way that the Christians suffered, it's likely that there were wives who had been abandoned by their husbands for converting to Christianity. It's likely there were husbands who had been abandoned by their wives because they converted to Christianity. They may well have been dealing with just regular problems. The death of a loved one. The loss of a job. Stress over all that was going on. I mean, just think of all the ways that, that people can suffer in the world in general. And these people were probably dealing with that. On top of the suffering that came to them from those who were oppressing them. And yet in the midst of all of their suffering, the author of Hebrews encourages them not to focus inward, but to consider one another. One of the easiest things in the world for us to do during the hard times is to turn inward. To only think about ourselves and, and our problems. I mean, let's be honest. Most of us are, are naturally selfish and self-centered anyway. Let a problem come into our lives and, and we take that to, to a whole nother level. And yet here we're told not to do that. Don't be self-centered, but be others-centered. Consider one another. And I love why we're to consider one another. We're not to consider one another to judge one another. We're not to consider one another to gossip about one another. We aren't to consider one another so that we can look down on one another. We are to consider one another to bring out the best in one another. To stir up one another to love and good works. The idea of consider, it means to give attention to. To give continuous care. Or to watch over. This is how we're, we're meant to be 
It's a people of God. It's a picture of a church that genuinely cares about what's going on in the lives of their brothers and their sisters. And we watch one another so carefully that we can see when they're discouraged and we go to them in that time of need to help them. We see when someone is faltering in their relationship and their service and their devotion to Jesus and we we go to them to help and to encourage them. We go the sole purpose of trying to, to stir up the fires of their love for Jesus so that there would be love and good works in their lives once again. What a, what a beautiful picture of what the church is meant to be. I want to point out that it doesn't say this isn't just to the pastor. This is all of us. That we, we are... We all have a responsibility in this to see one another, to consider one another, to go to one another and to stir one another up. For sure, I have a responsibility to do that. And probably it would be accurate to say I have a greater responsibility as the pastor to do this. But my greater responsibility does not negate your general responsibility to do it. If we were to look at Philippians, we would see Paul saying not to just focus on ourselves and our lives, but to care about what's going on in other people's lives as well. See, as we gather here, we aren't just a group of individuals who who meet and then sing some songs together and listen to a sermon together and then we go off and we're not a part of each other's life anymore. The Bible refers to believers as as a family. We are brothers and we are sisters. We are meant to be actively involved in one another's lives. We, We are meant to genuinely care for each other. We should look around this room and we should see people we we dearly love. People that we're concerned about. People that we rejoice when they rejoice and we mourn when they mourn. But we don't necessarily just do it from afar. But we do it up close and personal as well. We go to one another. We help one another. We encourage one another to stir one another up to love and good works. And part of the idea is that since we're so intertwined, that we each do it for the other. There's no one person that's meant to do this. We, as I encourage you and try to stir you up to love and good works, you encourage me and stir me up to love and good works. We, we just have this mutual encouragement society going on within the church. So that the church is the most encouraging place in the world. So that when we're down, we know that when we come here, we will find people who love us. People who will care about us. People will try to help us and build us up and not kick us when we're down. People that we can share our struggles with and know that they're not going to go out in the community and tell other people about it. They're not going to vague book about us. They're they're not going to gossip about us. They're going to pray for us. 
They're going to be there for us. We can call on them and we know that they're there and we know that they care. But even beyond calling upon them, we're to be the kind of people that just do what we can, even when, when we see it. We see somebody struggling and we just go to them without being invited because we care enough to do that. And we do this with the purpose of stirring up love and good works. We do this to stir up love, service, and devotion to Jesus because we know. We know that Jesus is the most important person there is. And so we, we always want people to stay close to Him. We get when they're down and we get when they're suffering, but, but Jesus is still central. Jesus is still above all. He's still greater than. And we want them to stay close to Him in their relationship, in their faith, and in their service. We do that individually, but we do it when we gather together as well. We sing songs that talk about our need to go and to serve Jesus. Because sometimes our, our lack of service isn't so much because we're down and discouraged. Sometimes we just get lax. We, we can get lukewarm. That's the, that's the pool of the world. And we sing songs about the need to be faithful to Jesus. And, and it's easy to focus just on ourselves. And so we, we study the word and we see things like this that tell us not to just consider ourselves, but, but to consider one another. And we're reminded we're, we're all a part of this. We, we need each other. Sometimes we'll study about the need to, to help the poor and it'll open our eyes to, to people in our community that we can go out and do things. That we talk about ways to be light and salt in our community so that we can help others. We, we talk about the need to, to visit the sick and the shut-in so that they'll know that their church cares about them. All of these things are things that we do as a church, that we do individually to strengthen our devotion to Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus is to be as it should. Our devotion to Jesus needs to be as it should. So the church works to do that. And then finally, the church strengthens my resolve for Jesus. What happens when hardships don't let up? What happens when the difficulties just get more difficult? What happens when the answer to our prayers is no? I'm not going to fix it right now. What do we do? For the Hebrew Christians, it seems that part of what they were tempted by was the, the temptation to quit gathering together. The author encourages them to not forsake the assembling of themselves together as the manner of some. See, their meeting together was important to them. Their meeting together, it, it was a testimony that they were followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason it was part of the reason it was such a testimony is they met on the first day of the week, Sunday. Well, what, what day was the Sabbath that, that the Jews traditionally met on? It was Saturday. For these people to get together on a Sunday... It was a bold declaration. We're not who we once were. 
We are a people devoted to and committed to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is greater than. We believe him. We love him. We're going to serve him and we're going to meet together and worship him. But in doing so, they, they earned the wrath and the hatred of the religious Jewish leaders. They earned the suspicion of the, the Roman government. It just made it difficult when they would gather together on the first day of the week. Sing and worship and focus on Jesus. And I'm sure like most things, at first there was a, it'll get better. But this too shall pass. Days went into weeks, weeks went into months, months went into years maybe. And this too, it was not passing. So the Sunday, here we are. And if we go, it's just going to make everything bad again. It's going to set my week off with everyone around me. Maybe, maybe we should stop gathering together. Maybe we should just have our own personal relationship with Jesus and not get together at all. And the inspired author tells them, do not do that. Instead of forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, exhort one another, gather together and exhort one another. But the exhort is to Basically, again, to, to stir up to love and to good works. Don't give up. Don't stop meeting. But keep meeting. And when you meet, encourage each other to keep meeting some more. And the last of verse 25 is an interesting thing. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. What is the day that was approaching? What well, almost certainly refers to Jesus return. One of the great promises of the New Testament is that Christ is coming back. And it seems as though early Christians, they they lived with a sense of anticipation. They lived as though Jesus could come back at, at any time. And because Jesus could come back at any time, it, it, it just changed how they lived and who they were and the things that they did. And what the author says is, you, you know we're getting closer to that time. You know we're moving towards the day of His return. So gather together all the more as it gets closer to that day. So they needed each other more toward the end of time than they did in this time. Now, if the end of time is a definite point, there is, there is a time in which God will bring history to a close and bring all of Revelation to pass, then we are pushing toward it. And we are closer on that day than they were. So we need each other all the more as we see that day approaching. But, but the question is, why? Why do we need each other more when we see the day approaching? I want to show you this. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's page 915 if you're using a pew Bible. 
In verse one, the Apostle Paul writes, but know this. In the last days, perilous times will come. Paul writes to Timothy to encourage him to be strong in the Lord, to do his will. He speaks prophetically about the end of days. And he warns them that these days will be dangerous times. And we know, as we're going to look at these, these things have been true of pretty much every generation in one way or another, I think, that has ever lived. The indication I get from this passage is that all of this is going to increase in greater and greater intensity until the day that Jesus comes back. The basic idea of verses 2 through 4 is that the last days will be, they will be godless days. They will be days in which society at large could care less about God. God is not in their thoughts. God is not a part of the reason they make the decisions that they make. God is not important. In these last days, they will be godless because people will have replaced God with other things. For instance, in verse 2, it will be godless because people will be lovers of themselves. They will replace a love for God with a love for self. A desire, my will and my want is the most important thing. It will be godless because people will have replaced a love for God with a, a love for money. Uh, possessions and stuff, that will be the most important. That will be the driving force of this day. People in this day will be godless because they'll be boasters. And the idea of a boaster is that they are, they are all puffed up and just talking about how, how great and how wonderful they are. Proud, it carries with it the same idea. It'll be, they'll be God, it'll be a godless day because people will be blasphemers. The idea of blasphemers seems to be that people will go, it'll be, a, it'll be a time in which people go out of their way to blaspheme God. Even while they deny that there is a God, they will go out of their way to mock Him. They'll go out of their way to blaspheme His name and His Son and, and all that He has done in the world. Now this next one is interesting. Right, if you're a parent or a child, pay attention. It'll be godless because... Children will be disobedient to parents. That's a big thing, right? Now, what I find interesting about this is we are in a culture where that is cool. I mean, that's, that's what you do. That's what you're expected to do. That's what you're supposed to do. And it's no big thing. But biblically speaking, a culture where the parents or the children are disobedient to the parents is a, is a godless culture. And according to Romans 1, it's a sign of a culture that is under the judgment of God. Anyway, take that for what you want to. Also, it'll be a, a godless time, because, or an ungodly time, because people will be unthankful. Nobody will appreciate what they have. Nobody will appreciate what God has given them and what God has done. Instead, I think what you'll find is there'll be a, an, an attitude of entitlement. I deserve this, I deserve what I have and more. Just given me what I am owed in life. There will be, it will be ungodly because it will be an unholy time. Sin will be rampant. They will be, it will be a kind of an obvious sin against God. Sin won't be shameful. 
It won't be a problem. It'll be flaunted and accepted and acknowledged and even glorified in the last days. It'll be godless and ungodly because the people are unloving. Kind of a picture of a heartless society that doesn't care about the poor in the streets or the unborn in the womb. Picture a society that, that doesn't care about anyone but themselves. There, there's no natural affection for, for good and right and true. And the weaker among us. It'll be godless and ungodly because people are unforgiving. No slack. One shot and you're done. I'll not forgive you. I'll not give you another chance. One shot. It'll be ungodly because people will be slanderers. Slanderers, basically liars, but liars about people. In the last days, it'll be acceptable to say whatever you want about other people. Without any sort of justification. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to be a good story. It doesn't have to be true. It only has to fit your ideology. It only has to further your agenda. And if it furthers your agenda, and if it fits your ideology, truth doesn't matter. Share away. It'll be ungodly. Because people will be without self-control. They'll just do whatever they want to do, no matter what. No regard for consequences, how it affects other people's lives, or even their own lives. Just whatever they want to do. Brutal. The word brutal is really interesting. In that it refers to a, a savage beast in the wild that cannot restrain its fierceness. One of my commentaries said, it's a word that should refer to a wild jackal, but never a human. And yet in the last day, it will be an ungodly time because people will be brutal. And the brutality, I believe, will be seen not just in murder and in the way murder is committed, but also by people who find pleasure and enjoyment in the brutality. It will be ungodly because people will be despisers of good. Basically, I guess you could say in the end times they will call evil good and, and good evil. It will be ungodly because people will be traitors. Traitors doesn't mean in this case betray your country as much as just betray your word. A person's word won't mean much of anything. They'll tell you whatever you need to hear, whatever you want to hear, whatever gets them their way, but they feel no obligation at all to do what they have said. Headstrong, reckless, running forward without regard to anyone or anything else. Haughty, again, prideful, self-exalted, seeing no need for a God or for anyone else. It'll be ungodly because people will love pleasure rather than love God. And I think there's a couple of ways we could take this. I think it would be two ways. One, they will love their pleasure more than they love God. And they will say, basically, any God that would restrain my pleasure is, is not a real God. So there's no God because I like doing this. It makes me happy. How could a real God care about what makes me happy? Another way to take it is that they will, I think they will adapt God to fit their pleasures. The Bible has described that God is like something. And certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And this is always the case. 
But in the, the last days, people will say, well, I just can't see how God would care. I think God is okay with me doing this. And it's not because they've got a new revelation of who God is and what God is like, but they, they really they love pleasure more than they love God, and so they're going to do whatever they can to find a way to justify what they want to do in life. In verse 5, it says that it is a, a form of godliness, but denying its power. So in the last days, there will still be religion. There will still be churches. But a lot of the churches and a lot of the religion, it will deny the power of God necessary or available to deliver people. Right? So the, the, the church of the last days, a lot of what you'll see in the time of the last days is the church today says or the church of the Bible says Jesus saves and he can deliver you from sin and you're dead to sin and you can overcome it and you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature desires. But the church in the last day will say it's okay. No, you don't need to be delivered, brother. You're fine the way you are. We've prayed about it. We've thought about it. Now you're just okay. And it's a God that, it's a cult, it's a religion that professes Jesus but never possesses Jesus. It has a form of godliness and then it will say you do this and you do that and you care for them and you do this. But it will deny the power of God to truly Change and save a life. That, that is what the last days will be like. Now, let me ask, does any of that even sound remotely familiar to anyone? I see this every day. Go ahead and turn back to Hebrews. The closer it gets to the time of Jesus' return, the more this stuff will increase, the more this stuff will be normative and acceptable and, and the way it's supposed to be. And here's the deal, man. You can't, you can't 2 Timothy 3 and have a strong relationship with Jesus at the same time. You can't 2 Timothy 3 and be a fully devoted follower of Christ. You can't have a form of godliness but deny the power and yet be a, a true, born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You're one or the other. So what happens is, as this stuff begins to, to spread, one of two things will happen. People who claim to be believers will push back against it and say, not me. Or they'll embrace it. And they'll wander from the truth. It'll destroy genuine faith in Jesus. It'll destroy <coughs> faithful service to Jesus. It'll destroy a relationship with Jesus. So the more it gets to the end, the more this stuff begins to abound, the more we need one another. The more we need one another to say, no, here's what the Bible says. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what He has done. Here's what we're meant to be like. And the reason we have to do this all the more, look at verse 36 of Hebrews 10. For you have need of endurance, that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, He who is coming will come and will not tarry. 
Now the just shall live by faith. But what's this last part? But if anyone draws back, my soul shall have no pleasure in them. What does it mean to draw back? In the context of what we're talking about today, it means to 1 Timothy 3. It means to embrace that mindset and go off in that direction. Remember what Jesus said about he who endures to the end? What happens to those who endure to the end? They'll be saved. What happens to those who don't endure to the end? Very clearly, the implication is they will not be saved. See, we need each other so that we can stay faithful to Jesus and to the end. We need each other to strengthen our resolve to serve Jesus no matter what's going on. What the problems and the trials of life, no matter what the culture is like. We, we need each other for these things. So that's what the church does. The church strengthens our resolve for Jesus. By singing songs about His greatness and His power and our duties to Him. By studying the Word that gives us the, reminds us of the great promises. The reward that will be ours if we stay through to the end. By caring for each other, by exhorting one another. The church, it, it strengthens our relationship for Jesus. And I want to say, I, it's interesting that you, I plan my, my sermons way, way in advance. I've had this series planned um, probably since May. And it came up on this weekend that we're talking about this. And the reason that's interesting to me is... Because of where our family has been in the last month. In the last month, things have been difficult for us. Because of what was going on with Lizzie. But we had, we had a church family. As we went through this time. We had people that cared. We had people that exhorted us. And encouraged us. Called us. And cared for us. And I just, I mean, ask me, if you prayed for Lizzie this time, would you stand? If you don't think something like this strengthens your faith in Jesus. Oh, man. For me. It was hard. There were doubts. There was anger. There was confusion. But what kept. Me from going off the rails in a lot of ways. Is your prayers. Your concern. You being the church. Caring for. Not because I was your pastor. But because I was your brother in Christ. Because Kelly is your sister. Because Lizzie is a part of our church. This is what a church does. This. This is how the church. Strengthens. Our faith in Jesus. Encourages us to stay our resolve for Jesus. Keeps us in our devotion to Jesus and keeps our faith in Jesus. This is why you need the church. I'm going to ask our musicians to come forward this time.